Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You're an old hat at this, so you know what you're doing. Sure. Um, uh, hello, everybody. Episode 177. Uh, Galen Trump Lee Show. Was that? <laughs> <laughs> Testing the mic. Uh, 177, Galen Trump Lee Show. Uh, David Coyer's back in-house. I think he's bu- I think you've pretty much done one every single year I've done this. You just get you at least one, once a year. Um, so Dave was just discussing what do you meme the card game. Yeah. That was so a lot I of fun. have it. So what, what, it's, it's, it's kind of like apples to apples, but with silly memes and then like cards to go with it. Yeah, and very adult cards to go with it. I love it. So I, I so I'm, I'm hoping that um, we're gonna try to play it over Christmas. My sister comes up and some family and, and just trying to. It's an easy game. Like anybody can play it. So it's just more about laughs than actually like strategy because it's just like for fun. There's, yeah, it's simply uh, like an apples to apples uh, exactly. Except the you know the memes are these funny pictures that all of us have seen so many times on uh, on the computer, but the cards themselves are. Like you don't want to play this game with your mom. It's <laughs> which I actually probably want to play. And you mom. almost so, don't want to play it with your coworkers. But we all did that on Friday. <laughs> so, does it have the one with like the little kid with the sand photo? I I didn't go through all of them, so I'm, I imagine it must. Because I think that I think that he, that that kid or whatever family ended up getting royalties for the kid that was doing like the sand. Oh really? Yeah. And I look at it, I'm like that could have been any kid, but it's just like the perfect like slow mo picture, yeah. which I've used multiple times, and it just has become like an iconic meme and. It's, it's like the Robert Redford nodding meme, or the uh, kid, you know, the kid at the hockey game. What What's the What's the most famous meme you could think of? The like most, the, there's like the Michael Jordan crying meme. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I think the most famous one is the the Robert Redford one, which is him with the beard, you know, when he's young, and the camera is sort of panning into him slowly, and at the last second, he just nods. Um, have you? Yeah, I use that. I, like, I think I've seen, but that's so a motion meme. Does those count? Or are those gifs? Gifs. I think those are gifs or gifs. I I've been saying gif all my life, but I GIF? think okay. somebody says that's fine. I, neither here nor there. I think that they're also sort of like memes, but maybe they're not pure memes in the sense that they're not just a static picture. Well, there was like I know one of them has like the little girl looking over with the fire burning the house, and she's got like a little like smirk on her face, right. like she did it, which I don't think you know. Obviously, like just the cut. kid with the bowl haircut who has like that empty like smile, like hey. yeah, you know yeah, that. Well, I think a lot of the thing That's with popular the memes, I think a lot of those are older memes that they end up like every year you get memes, obviously, but they're like the iconic ones that just like stand the test of time, and they're just goofy, but everybody's seen them. And they I'd love to know where these things actually come from. Like, where, are, there's a, Is there a meme factory somewhere where somebody just takes photos and, well, and decides that they are memes? Well, what would happen if, if a meme goes viral? How does that work? Does someone... Because I'm assuming like we got a picture of you, and all of a sudden you became a meme guy, and right. we're just doing some fu- funky face, and someone wants to take that photo, and now it's all over the internet. Like, Do you get paid for that? Is there a copyright? Did they like? How did they... They steal it off of like maybe they caught it in a newspaper or they saw it on like someone's Facebook page and start sharing it. I don't know. To be honest with you, I'm out. I have no knowledge in that arena. I don't even know like. But imagine being a meme generator. Like that was your job. I think a meme generator would have to be somebody who also works for like Reddit and sort of just wants to sort of garner additional traffic. That's that's what I would guess. Well, you look at um, 
So I'm on Instagram and there's so many funny ones. Like I follow a lot of golf ones that are mm-hmm. hilarious, but there's a bunch of real estate ones that it, some of them are so funny that they make you laugh like out loud. Cause you're in the industry. So like for you, it'd be like a hiring kind of sure. staffing and you'd find all these memes around that. And you're like, Oh my God, like stuff that you guys roll your eyes at, or, you know, the, the, uh, it's called the stereotypes of staffing agencies, but they right. hit it like nail on the head and like, absolutely. And, and without a doubt. And one, one of the memes, there was a picture of a, this is recently a guy, you know, the, the guy who stands with the sign, yep. the cardboard sign. Yeah. Dude with the sign, I think they call him. Right. Whose job is to sit there with the sign. Right. Just, and, and there's just a random like comments that are like, but they're hilarious, completely ridiculous, but they're relating to whatever he's at. Right. Yes. And I think one of them said it's, it's data, not data, but it was spelled the same. So all you saw was the sign that said it's data, it's data not, not data. data. <laughs> but it was like how we pronounce it. Was, but, the, but the one that the person had, uh, the real estate meme was, uh, oh, your dad is not a home inspector. And that was the sign that they held up. But of course, everybody in the real estate industry, as soon as like the dad or the uncle show up, you're like, oh right. boy. Like, Here they go. He's got all his credentials popping out of, of 30 years of home ownership. So um, Dave, what, what have you been up to? What, like staffing industry? Dave Coyer life. Last time I really, we connected was at the tournament for the kids. We'll get, we'll get into that sponsored by you guys. Um, yeah, but that we've was, been into, I haven't seen you in a few months. We've been into a lot. Um, we're busy, busy, busy. As anybody knows, we're, you know, our recruiters are working harder every week. Uh, and, and thankfully there's been even more hiring going on and we've seen an uptick in candidate traffic. Uh, we've been proactive at, uh, outreach to candidates online and just, again, driving candidates in the door so that we can better take care of the clients that we have week in, week out. But um, there's been just a, a ton happening across the board. Also, we have a uh, Russell Merrill, who's been with us for a little over a year, mm-hmm. and was uh, he was uh, you know, an officer in the Army uh, prior to joining us. Uh, he raised his hand, and he is now our branch manager in training for our office in Essex, Vermont. Oh, wow, okay. So uh, that's exciting. He's over there. I think last week was his first sort of week actually working over there full time. And um, is that a new expansion or brand new? Oh, so he's to get from the ground up. He's ground started. up, nice. uh, brand new office, uh, brand new office build out. Okay, uh, just going forward over there, bringing the uh, the, the Coyer culture to <laughs> to Essex, Vermont, which is great. Um, so, oh, congrats! I didn't know that. So, um, where where are you located in Essex? Did you buy like? An old building, storefront. We mall. rented a, in, a, an office space uh, on Susie Wilson Road, okay. which is uh, just, I guess, north of uh, Five Corners by about okay. a mile and a half. Um, and uh, it's a great office, uh, wide open space that we had partitioned according to our uh, specifications, allowing for sort of a, a, a reception office, a couple interview rooms, and then some spot, uh, space in the back for recruiters. So, but, so you could build out to how you wanted it, so yeah. kind of suited to you guys? Yeah, it was a big open floor plan, completely open. We met with the uh, the owner of the building, who happened to be sort of a commercial, uh, he owns a ton of commercial real estate over in that area, and uh, a super nice guy, super flexible, and uh, very reasonable rent-wise, so um, the risk profile is pretty low, but uh, we think the opportunity is huge. So um, I was going to say, so the market over there is a good market then? Yeah. Or, or a market that you can tap into? Yeah, I think the market over there is similar to the market over here in that there's a lot of industrial and uh, warehouse uh, businesses, you know, not too dissimilar from the Plattsburgh profile. Um, we didn't go for like downtown Burlington or, or South Burlington vibe. We're sort of moving towards that. You know, the Essex, Vermont vibe is is a lot like Plattsburgh in, in many ways. Kind of like the build out of the city a little bit, like kind of yeah. 
spreading out the area yeah if you drive around in that region you'll see there's a ton of of, you know there's there's keurig and you know other large employers in that uh in that space plus going from there north to the canadian border there's of course a ton of uh industrial so essex is north of of vermont Vermont, north of burlington it's east of burlington i think if you were to look at it always go like south burlington williston Right, and then Shelburne. It's kind of the, the south. Yeah, southern. if you instead of getting on the highway as you normally would coming from the ferry, you kind of go over the highway, okay, and then you take that road. I think it's Route Seven South. Yep. Um, it ends up sort of meandering southwest, um, southeast rather. Okay. Meander southeast, and it sort of lands, you know, again several miles, um, a couple miles east of uh, a little bit northeast of the airport, um. I think as the crow flies, it's probably uh, east, northeast of Burlington. So um, in a position like you guys, when you decide, hey, we're going to expand, we're going to go out to a new area, and you pick Essex. Is this something that, that, I mean, that's your headquarters, but I'm assuming you guys can venture into other, it's not like geographically you're tied just to Essex, right? No. So, I mean, but it's just where you hang your yeah. hat. And- it's, yeah, it's a, a stake in the ground. It's a place where people can come and meet with our recruiters in person uh, and, uh where we can uh, meet with our clients as well, uh, if that uh, is necessary. But it's it's really to sort of bring our service, bring our uh, recruiting style to that market. You know, there's primary markets, secondary markets, and tertiary markets. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, without sort of getting really into the in- inside strategies of Coyer staffing, I think servicing this industrial warehousing sector um, from market to market is going to be a focus of ours. Um now, how long of a process does this take until like now we're open? You said you've been open what about a week? Couple, okay, a week. So, how long has this been? Like, how long do you plan for something like this? Like mentally plan, like kind of like I want to expand. You kind of make the the decision to expand, and then how long does it take from making the decision to expand to actually to the point a week ago where you're like, okay, we're actually open. Well, I think that you know, if you uh, if you if you ask my wife. We've been planning on expanding into Vermont on the since the day we opened our doors here. You know, we okay. knew that we would have a, a multi office approach. Uh, we will have more offices in the future. You know, a lot of it is like anything else. It's uh, it's uh, seeing the stability of your of your main location, uh, seeing the success and and profits from that location, and then sort of being strategic as to how you lever that uh, lever that. Um, I guess experience and uh, I guess any strategy you put in place, can we duplicate this? Do we have an offering that uh, is going to be compelling for a new market? And, uh, you know, a lot of it is sort of gut instinct. um, And uh, I guess like what they say, the uh, inaction is, is, what's it, the only action worse than, (laughs) the the only thing worse than, like bad a, action is inaction or something like yeah. that. There's a like it's better to make a decision and be a yeah, bad decision. Yeah, you know, like don't be the path. right. Um, so is it nerve wracking? I'm assuming, like in the sense of like there's just a lot of moving parts and you got to make sure it kind of fits. Yeah. It is. It is a. It's always a risk when you open something because you're putting a lot of eggs in a basket. You know, like you're putting resources, you're putting time, you're putting money. 
You're yeah, but I feel like, you know, it, I don't know, uh, five years ago it was a real risk for us mm-hmm. to open up our own location here. You know, we had nothing. Uh, we had we had an idea. We knew we had a strategy as to how we'd want to approach the staffing world in Plattsburgh. Um, we have executed on that. You know, the, the, there'll be nothing ever, knock on wood, but I can't see anything being more um, sort of nerve-wracking and unsettling than going from zero to where we are today. Um, I don't, I don't feel, you know, there's a part of me that feels like there's almost no risk to opening up another location for as far as, you know, we, we know how to execute the business. We know how to train people to do the business. Well, um, we care a lot about our, our, the, the candidates who register with us. We care a lot about the clients who, who come to work with us and, and trust us to help them, you know, hire the people they're looking for. You know, that is work that we really enjoy doing work that we're passionate about. So I think in any market where that, where that, uh, where we're doing that, I think it's. You know, are we? We're gonna have. We're gonna have hits. We're gonna have misses, but by and large, um, we're gonna learn month in month out what we're doing right, what we need to improve, and keep executing and keep growing. Um, having a recruiter over there working, having some office space over there, supporting that individual to to do that business. Um, it's a. Uh, the the opportunity costs of not being there are greater than actually being there. Yeah, and I think like you said you you get a good pulse on the market. You kind of you know you bet. I think a lot of it's gut. Like I think I I make a lot of decisions gut. Are you kind of the same way? Where you kind of get like a really like weird emotion in your stomach where you're just like this just feels like it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I would have to give credit to Elizabeth. She's really the uh, she's. I'll I'll wait for months and months and months before we do something. But you know, I think she came home one day and said, "Listen, we're going to do it now, and uh, let's go to Burlington next week. Let's pick out a place and uh, let's stop talking about it." So and, it was that quick, like yeah, I mean, once it, the it, it, it was like, yeah, because you know, and for me, that's kind of exciting too because. If she feels that way, if she feels that strongly, she has such good instincts about our business and just about business in general, mm-hmm. where when she says, you know, okay, let's, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I think the time is now. Then it's really easy for me to be like, all right, then it's almost like the switch turns on in my head and says, okay, then A, B, C, D, let's go. Uh, we're over there on Tuesday. We're meeting with a realtor. We're looking at locations. We're over there the following week. Mm-hmm. We're finalizing which location. We're over there the following week. We're meeting with contractors to build out. We're meeting, you know, every other week we're in Vermont while the whole build out takes place. You know, sort of, then once you're there, then it's like, all right, let's go. So things just move quickly. Yeah. Kind of, that's good. I mean, that's, like I said, I mean, it, once you make the decision, you might as well go, right? Yeah. And that's why. That's majority of my, my life. It's like, I, I, I always look like, just do it now. Like why? Because there, there's so many times in life and I think in business where people, you might be like with a client, like, yeah, that sounds good. Why don't we just, uh, we'll talk about it next week. I'm like, well, we're both sitting right here. Let's just, can we just, right. here, it, it's not more than a few minutes, most likely, because you probably just rip through it and you know, you know, if it has to, I, if it has to really take a long discussion, I still think setting the ground like up front, like, okay, let's work at least kind of like look into this stuff so when yeah. we do meet we're already that much further ahead but I, I hate the procrastination of well we'll just do it next week or next month or just kind of punting things or kicking the can down the road because i'm like if we're here we're here like if i had a question like hypothetically with you i'm not i, I wouldn't be like all right see you dave and then like email you tomorrow like hey can we get together and talk about this i'm like well if you're here i'm just gonna ask you or vice right. versa and i think um I think one, it just saves time. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's time saver is a huge thing. Yeah, and you know, Jared Murphy's our lead recruiter over here. He's the one who brought Russell Merrill in to work uh, at our company a little over mm-hmm. a year ago, um, or around a year ago. And, you know, 
we met with Russ, thought he was great, and hired Russ. He quickly became confident as a recruiter, but he had a, a bunch of, you know, if you're an officer in the, in the Army, uh, and you, you've had a lot of training, you, you know what it's like to lead a, team, a group of people, how to be responsible for yourself, how to be responsible for a team of people. So we knew that we had a lot of horsepower in that hire, mm -hmm. and he sort of made it known to us at the beginning, listen, I want to come aboard, and I want to, I want to learn what it means to be a recruiter, but I also want to do more. So, you know, I don't know what that means. And we said, well, you know, we may be looking to open up another location in east of us within the year. And he's like, well, then if, uh, if let's see how this goes. But if it goes well, then, you know, I'm going to raise my hand and say, I want to I want to be over there. And so for us, you know, that's that's also easier, you know, as opposed to just training a complete stranger over in Vermont to execute the business and not even know our culture, not even know sort of how we how we work, how we manage. You know, I think that that's that's a big deal, and I think that's a big plus. And it might just be the blueprint moving forward. You know, anytime you have a new office location, you know, groom somebody to go, as opposed to just hiring the first hire being somebody that's brand new, a stranger. Well, I think, like you said, some someone I, I've been I've been researching and reading and trying to like get better at, you know, like a leadership and like culture and you know, and a lot of getting people on the same page and kind of like rowing the same, same, uh, you know, rowing the same direction. And oh, there's so much to like leadership and and uh, I, like I'm gonna say leadership and culture like hand in hand right um, or like vision or, like setting the vision and setting like the, you know where the focus is and um, it's it's tough like it's not like something that comes natural and I think at least for me internally I can have it like I have a pretty good internal sense of like I can lead myself to what I want to do but then when you're trying to get multiple people then it's like you got to level up that next level so like someone like Ross, if he's like, hey, it's basically like, give me the ball kind of deal. Right. Like, give me the ball. I want to take the shot. And I think getting someone that has the confidence and, and wants to take ownership of something, I think is great because I like I don't like to micromanage. So if somebody was like, hey, I'm going to take on that project or I want to spearhead that. I'm like, great. This is kind of what I want to do in the grand scheme of things. And this is an avenue that we're going to use to get there. And then you make sure that it just kind of goes and follows that path. So it's kind of like... Um, telling people like you know what the overall vision is but then taking and not showing you how to do it but like here's what i want done and can you take that idea and put your spin on it or your talent or whatever on it to try to get it to that like that next level and it and i don't those people are hard to find because they have to they have to want it you know and they have to i, I think push um i don't know what, what do you find in that yeah i think it you know leadership is really um Leadership and culture, you know, I come from the, from the mentality that, you know, culture will be strategy, you know, mm -hmm. hands down. Um, I see, well, let me back up. You know, when my wife graduated college, she joined a, a small uh, a computer parts, I guess, uh, company out of Rochester selling uh, computer components. You know, we're talking about back in the 90s, so mm -hmm. it's, it was pretty popular for for large companies just to buy computer hardware components and whatnot from a variety of sort of like cdw and then there were smaller players in the marketplace as well so she went there she worked her butt off and and it was super super hard but she she learned the business inside and out and and was a successful salesperson for them so they opened up an office in san diego but asked her if she would go out and and launch it with another individual and so like that that sort of gave us that imprint of okay you know that that's that seems to work she's experienced that um you know the leadership that you 
develop the culture you develop at your let's say location a um you have to i think as a leader you have to be comfortable with the fact that people are going to take from you you know the good parts and if they really are leaders they're going to go somewhere else and they're going to apply what they've learned but also bring their personality bring what they think is going to work and you have to trust them that they are going to sort of implement as long and, and grow the business in a way that it may it's, it's probably going to be a version of the home office, but it's not going to be a duplication. Mm -hmm. And I think leaders have to be comfortable with that. Um, people want to have ownership, even if they don't have quote unquote ownership, they want to know that, Hey, I have some command and control of, of what's happening here every day. Um, you hired me to run this, let me run it. And I think that, you know, Elizabeth and I really have a, we have a lot of strengths along those lines. We're, we're the anti-micromanagers. I want to I want to sort of give big outlines as to how we want things executed. Um, I don't micromanage the activity on a daily basis, but we do we do manage sort of the activity on a weekly basis and a monthly basis and performance and everything else. But you know, we want to hire people who a are adults, come to work every day, they understand what we're trying to execute, and then they use their own ingenuity and their brights to sort of make it happen. Do you guys? Um... <clears throat> Do you guys do a lot with like metrics and tracking and amongst, you know, obviously, you know, I, I'm, you have your finances and numbers like that, but do you guys track like daily activity, weekly activity, monthly activity? We have it all tracked. Um, there's, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer in having sort of like key components, key metrics that you sort of watch. Uh, I, I believe that you know there is such a thing as anal uh, paralysis by analysis. You know, if you're managing every single breath that somebody takes every day while they're sitting in their seat trying to execute the business, ultimately, well, all you have is you're building people who are just robots of your vision. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that that's, I don't think it's effective uh, for performance, not only short term, medium term, but long term. But I also don't think that what happens is those jobs become less enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, Anything that you can manage along those lines are probably better suited for a machine to execute. Mm -hmm. You know, when you build, when you bring a human being in and they're going to work and and you know, sit at a desk, meet with your clients, meet with your customers, have conversations, bring their personality to the mix. Um, it's hard to sort of. I think there's a danger in overregulating that activity, uh, mm -hmm. hour in, hour out, every day. Yeah, I, I try to. It's hard though. Well, I look at. Business has two things. I think like, you know, you track and obviously the, the numbers and, and the stuff that means something. Like mm -hmm. you said, like the big numbers, big KPIs, not the, you know, not the minute, minute little details all, all day long. But I think the idea is you give someone a platform and you give someone a, uh, you know, you try to give them a space that they can go in and like make their own, but then execute on their ability. Because I think, you know, especially in like the real estate land, like every agent's different. So it's like, this is what I do and this is what I think it has worked for me but if i had to really strip it down i say stuff different than the agent b or c or, or abc um but at the end of the day here's like general themes and as right. long as you can kind of encompass the themes in your yep. conversation like if i'm talking to a seller like there's certain things that i, I want to come across in the conversation the order when i talk about it how i talk about it is kind of up to me you know that's kind of where you put like the the personality onto it but just make sure you hit these things because at the end of the day, that's what we really need to figure out. Without a doubt. I mean, there are definitely word tracks plus, you know, quote unquote, that you know, if somebody has no idea about our business, you know, I can outline for them 
nearly every single scenario that they're going to happen upon mm -hmm. and what are sort of proven techniques proven ways to sort of have a conversation around those objections right if you're really kind of getting into that you know really block and tackling way of sort of going about a sales day mm -hmm. um, they say this here are some good ways to sort of come back with this um, I know all of those at the back of my hand I certainly deliver and train our, our people on those when they're brand new. But then, you know, the rope is let out quite a bit. You know, I want, I want people to enjoy themselves. And, you know, um, turnover is super expensive. Um, it's not only expensive in hard dollars for a business owner, but it's, it's expensive in, in what it does to the relationships you have with the clients. You know, if, if every time you have turnover, that means that there's a whole slew of clients now who have to sort of, sort of re, re-engage with somebody else on your team and sort of, and then sort of reevaluate is this is this my best solution moving forward um i think all of those are sort of these hidden costs of turnover that people don't always calculate and i'd, I'd much rather sort of allow somebody you know if, if somebody underperforms from a financial perspective you know in, in over a month or a couple of months that's something that you can sort of bring in and and have a conversation around and kind of point them in the right direction and help them be better um but if they're coming into work every day and enjoying themselves and feeling like they're productive and feeling like they are adding value and, and, you know, adding value, especially, and I think in our, our, both of our businesses, it's like, you're helping individuals either land a job, you're helping individuals buy a house. Both are super personal experiences. And I think that, uh, the better that we can sort of have a team that's engaged in that, in that work, uh, authentically engaged. Um, I think the better the results will well, always I, be. I think that, I mean, we're both service industries. So it's right. like at the end of the day, I tell clients or agents this all the time, we don't own anything. Like any mm -hmm. home we sell, we don't own. Like, right. so people like, what are they looking for you? Why they, why would they use you over, you know, not using a realtor or not using you personally? I said, it's, it's one is the value. It's the, your personality, your value, your, um, you know, you kind of, the, the, uh, um, what's the word? Like the, uh, you make it easy. Like, um, what's the word? convenience, the convenience yeah. aspect. So I'm saying like you, facilitate. They, yeah. They facilitate. So it's like they use the knowledge, but they also want the convenience, not having to do a bunch of stuff and not having to come up with figuring out the best way. Cause like, well, I'm just going to trust you cause you've put all this time, effort and energy into learning the, you know, a, well, I would say, I don't say the best path, but the, a pretty darn good path. Cause always can get, you always trying to get better, but like my knowledge versus a newer agent versus no agent is better. Your knowledge versus someone that just came in versus someone who's not in the staffing right. industry. So it's like you got to find someone that you know knows what they're doing. Like if I had to find a true staffing, I would come in and say, "Hey, Dave, I have no clue what to do. You know all the ins and outs. You know the regulations. You know the right. you know all the 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 jargon and everything else. And, and and again, you can see the red flags and you can see potential pitfalls way before." The layman can because you're going to say, "Ah, we shouldn't do that." Like, why? It doesn't make it looks, it looks, it looks perfect. Like, well, this, this, and this are red flags, but it's such small details that, like, at the at that moment in time, might look insignificant. But then, give it a couple weeks or months, and then all of a sudden, it rears its head, and then you're like, "Oh, okay, good thing Dave saw that, or yeah. his 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 organization saw that way before." Um, now, do you guys find being a staffing agency, if you were to have turnover, does that because I always think like someone that's used to hiring would be good at keeping people, but obviously it's, it's a different thing. You know what I mean? Cause you're bringing people, you're bringing companies on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that 
you know, you still are good at hiring, but some people just leave jobs just for normal. I mean, they have, there's many reasons why people would move on from different well, positions. I think that the, uh, that's an interesting uh, thing that you bring up. The, the mechanics of helping a company hire, uh, they don't necessarily, you, know, you aren't necessarily communicating to them the culture that you have inside of your own company. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I can certainly, you know, here's what you ought to do, Mr. and Mrs. Client. You ought to meet this many of candidates, and here's how you ought to meet them. Here's how many interviews there should be, and, and here's how long we should take between the you giving me the job order and, and when we actually get an offer on the table. And it shouldn't be any much much longer than this for a whole host of reasons, and I can explain why. Like All of those are sort of the block and tackling of sort of going through a hiring process. But I, as a business owner and having a team of recruiters that work with us every day, you know, that's different because now it's my own culture. And what am I doing internally to help the individuals that I've hired help clients navigate those scenarios? Um, so I think that there's, there, in fact, it, the staffing industry is rife with turnover in the staffing companies themselves, by and large, because I think that there are far too many of them that, you know, they you start looking at KPIs and you start talking about placements and you start talking about, you know, uh, anything other than, Hey, I'm meeting a candidate. I'm understanding whether what, what they want and I'm having conversations with clients and I'm understanding what they need and what, what they'd like us to go find for them. And I'm, and I'm working really hard to making certain that those matches make sense. Um, all too often, all, all clients care about us. You know, how many placements are you making this week? Mm-hmm. How many placements are you making this week? And, I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth because there's a certain number of, of placements that have to happen every week in order for a staffing agency to be successful. But, you know, I, I, I'm trying to hire bright enough individuals and empathetic enough individuals and people who are nuanced enough where they can recognize that, yeah, I may not hit my KPI for the week, mm-hmm. but if I know that I have, you know, sort of in a, in a very real way helped clients hire the people they're looking for, help candidates navigate the marketplace so that they're landing someplace that's going to help them achieve their goals. You know, that's more important long-term. And we make that clear to our people week in, week out. Like, we're, 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 we're never sort of, you know, you know, holding that hatchet over their head saying, hey, listen, if you don't hit your KPIs this week, then guess what? Get you, another job. Yeah, do you find... Because um, I, I think the parallels in our business, people like, you know, well, you know, you're, you're a salesperson you're just going to talk talk someone into buying and it's like well that's not i've never talked to anybody in buying a, a house like right. if you can find someone that can talk someone to buy a house like i'd love to meet that person because i never talked to anybody into leaving a job yeah to go it, somewhere else because like, they're big they're big decisions like and i i kind of joke around like i can sell you a crappy piece of coffee like i could probably sell you a crappy coffee if you don't like it you can throw it in the garbage and go to the store just down the road and buy another three dollar coffee you can't do that with houses you can't right. do that with jobs so it's like i find that's such a, uh, it's always funny. And of course you find over time, like how you can, you know, take that objection and kind of almost, almost like say logical stuff, but then it becomes kind of humorous. That's like why that question was even asked. But, um, I think the same thing, it's, you know, certain metrics and certain, you know, the amount of, I guess if you go from a dollar perspective that I've left on the table to make sure that I was doing the right, doing right by the client was, it just, it just felt better. Cause I'm, I'm someone that I get really guilty if I like something, like if I do something wrong, I get super guilty. But you have to imagine, like there's, okay, let's just say you have a group of sales reps here and there's a few of them who have been hitting the marks for a while, 
both personally, no, like, you know, in real estate, it's one of those, it's black and white. If you're not selling homes and you're not making money, you're not, you're not keeping the food on the table. So they have both their own internal pressures, their family pressures, and maybe even the pressures from the agency. Hey, listen, you're not hitting your mark. It's completely within the realm of possibility that somebody could try to talk somebody into like, you know, you know, somebody has doubts about this home that they've been sort of dancing around for a while. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that individual might be like, God damn it. Like I got, I, man, I just want to close this deal. I mean, we're so close. And the guy, now the guy has a problem with how the windows open and how this, and you know, and I, I just got to figure out a way to get this guy closed. Right. Yeah. And I think that anytime you, anytime you're saying, I just got to figure out how to get this guy closed. Yeah, that's like the major red flag in my mind. Like, I just got to get this guy to accept this offer. I just got to, I just got to, you know, I just want the client. I just got to figure out some way for them to extend an offer to this candidate. I just got to get it done. You know, to me, it's like, okay, step back. Yeah. Take yourself. You're, you're talking, what you're talking about is a scenario that's good for you. Yeah. It's an ego thing or self, self-indulgent. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do what's best for the clients and you have to be willing to say to both parties, Hey, if this isn't working, that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go out of business if I don't sell this home today. I'm not going to go out of business if I don't make this placement today. And you have to allow your, your realtors and, and my, you know, the recruiters at Courier Staffing to feel the same way. Like, hey, if it doesn't come together, yeah, it stinks. But I, I want to sleep at night knowing that everybody realizes that they're still going to have their jobs on Monday because we, you know, okay, we didn't close the deal on Friday afternoon, but yeah. let's keep working it. Well, know? I think, well, two, or one thing, we live in a small area where reputation is your currency, basically. Like mm-hmm. if you find out that you're, someone thinks you're a, a scumbag and that just translates to that's how people think about you. That right. doesn't hurt, that or doesn't help business. And then number two, it's like everything happens for a reason. Like I just believe that so often. Like in the amount of times I've like done a deal, I'm like, and you just feel like you took a step back, but then all of a sudden, which you can't see, but a week, two, three weeks later, a month later, you take three, four steps forward and you're like, holy crap. Like, right. But I think it's just a lot of, it's the intent. It's trying to do stuff correctly. It's trying to do right by others. It's trying to do right for others. And it's like, you start doing, you kind of keep that as like your North star, that, that kind of ethical guidance of like, Hey, I'm really going to try to make a difference for this person, not because of myself, but, um, and one of it actually, I had a printer for years until like I basically moved into this office and underneath the main thing is that if you take care of the people, the numbers take care of themselves. Right. And I had that on my, I had it on a sheet of paper that I, I, in this, I've had it, God, I had it for years. And I remember I'd, I had it when I was young because it was that same thing. It was like, you weren't doing very well and you were trying to get your footing in the industry. And I was like, and there, I mean, is like anybody that works in a job that doesn't really have a set, a set salary, like, when you're starting off, it's pretty rough. And there were some early years where I was like, oh my God. Like, I mean, you're looking at, you're like, should I quit? Do I need to get a second job? I mean, all these thoughts go through your head. Of course. And uh, I remember like at no point, and I, I, like, I can pat myself on the back now, is I, at no point did I stoop or snoop down to like a lower level of like selling my soul kind of thing to make a deal. I was always like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. And there was times that I... I would tell people not to buy something, even though I was like back in my head, I'm like, God damn, I gotta like, I gotta really sell something. To, it would be great to close. Yeah, just be awesome. But I'm like in my head, I'm like, no, this is not the best scenario for you guys. And yeah. based on what they were telling me, and I think over time it's paid off. But there's some times where it's tough because you really got to stick to your guns at that early early time. And but every single time I've just thought of the client and really did my best for the client. Um, and it's kind of something that's ingrained now. It's I like just. I've never been a big dollar and cents guy from like, like real estate, you get a commission. Like that doesn't really 
doesn't get me excited. Like getting a commission check doesn't get me all excited. Like I get more excited getting a deal together. Right. I get more excited like knowing the, that a family bought a home and in their mind this is like an exciting opportunity for them. And yeah. for the seller, they're like oh, now they're moving on to something else. Yeah. Like and I can totally get that. It's like it's like the culmination of everything. But my the biggest high I get from real estate is getting an offer accepted or getting like that initial like all right, we beat someone out in a multiple offer or we sold the house right. in a couple of days. Like that's where you get the thrill because that's really where all the work is. And then the closing process, you kind of just hang on for the ride and because there's a million, feels like a million people with their hands in the pot in the last like six, eight weeks of the deal. But um, yeah, that's always the most fun is like getting the deal together because that's when you see people excited and that's when they're usually the most excited. Right. And then again, you try make sure everybody <laughs> maintains that kind of level of excitement all the way to closing. But it's, it's uh, but that's the thing. I think just, focusing on that over and over again and that's why like i could see knowing you and you know and and i think the company is like i could see that happening where it's like i think you're only good if you have that mindset like if you didn't you you would you never survive if you had an opposite mindset no and but you know you, there are what's hard is that you have players that you're competing with who you have those other mindsets and sometimes they beat you to deals and they beat you to situations but you almost have to remember like like you know, there might be somebody who registered with you who you knew wasn't a good fit for this client, and even though, you know, it would have been easy just to place them there because it was it would have been another placement for the week. Um, you find out that that person went to another recruiting agency and they knew those jobs were available, so they just hurry up and place that person there. But there was some thought behind it. There was a, some intention behind why you had why you why you thought this way, and it wasn't anything like. I don't like that individual is simply, I, I think that, I think there's a better fit out there for that person. I think there's a better fit out there for that company. And we're just going to take a little bit more time to make that happen. But like you say, often, you know, everything happens for a reason, quote unquote. So, uh, you're hoping that that works out for those individuals and maybe you were wrong, but all too often you find out that a couple months down the road, they're not together anymore. And there's a you know, like that you're sort of vindicated, but you know, in the short run, sometimes people feel like maybe I, maybe I, you know, overthought that maybe I should have just made the placement and walked away. And, um, but I tell them, listen, you, ha you have to listen to your gut. If it didn't happen, if you didn't make it happen, um, don't worry about it. Let's keep going. So the uh, a question I'm actually want to hear your perspective. And I think maybe, maybe at this point you've, uh, you built up the, uh, we'll call them calluses at this point, just through so, so many years of doing it that you just built up this, like this ability to do so. But when you look at anybody, you ask someone about, was the hardest thing in, and it was the best and hardest thing about any job is always the people. Like the best parts of people, the worst parts of people. Right. Like in most situations, your business is people. Right. Like, and that's like we sell houses, which is a physical you know structure. It's not living, it's not breathing. But you're dealing with all the complexities of a human from two sides because obviously you have the you have the you know you have your candidate and then you have the company. Um, how is that where your basically your service or, or I would say product, but your service is humans. Like how does that work out where you have, obviously you, you have your company, you have your company you're working for and you have, and actually what you're doing is matchmaking two people, which again, like I said, we're trying to do it with a house. So we are, and I, cause I, the reason I say that is because sometimes buyers and sellers don't get along, but there's, there's typically enough little buffer in between and there's a house in between that it kind of keeps things a little okay. But you're putting like two people directly in contact with each other, and I would just having known what I know about people and like very complex. Everybody's got their own personalities and and you know goods and bads, and then trying to take all of that and your business is generated just around people all the time. 
How have you been able to navigate that? Or is, am I thinking too much into it where it's not? As- no, I think that you're thinking like most people think about it. I, you know, um, when somebody, when I'm working with somebody and they're new in the business and I tell them, listen, people are going to let you down every day. Mm-hmm. Companies are going to let you down. Individual candidates are going to let you down. Yeah, it's just It just goes with the territory. And let you down is sort of like a, a, a broad brush of they're going to change their minds. They're going to do what's best for them. They're not going to do it, what you thought would be best in order to make this deal come together. Um, you know, people wake up someday and they're like, you know, I thought I wanted to leave my employer, but I don't. And, and, and now I'm sort of in this situation with this recruiter who thinks that I want to leave. And like, you know, all of this plays out. But I tell them, you know, it's, it's, it can't, you're, yes, you know, we meet with people and without people, we can't make placements without people. We, you know, there's no business to be had, but who you are and what you bring to that situation is the service that you're providing. You are the service. The candidate's not the service. The client's not the service. It's your ability to be authentic, be empathetic, uh, be, you know, do your best to get a group of people to go to work for this client or to help these help this client and this candidate come together you know how you you know how you listen how you how you approach it um how you handle when things don't go the way you wanted them to go like are you really in it authentically for the service are you are you delivering really good service to both parties that's what somebody's buying you know they aren't buying they're certainly paying you to help them find an individual but they're paying for your service. You know, they're going to employ this individual, but they're paying us for the service we provide. So just be, you know, just be consistent in the service. Be ever available. Be ever, uh, I say these words over and over again, but be authentic and be empathetic. You know, this is, this is a big deal for a lot of people coming together. So who you are and how you help people navigate that, how you handle things when they don't go right, that's the service that people are buying, I believe. What a... So... When you hear a lot of stuff like people are, you know, looking for hiring, looking for hiring, and that's kind of like a theme, I think, around, you know, the area where people just don't have enough work and people don't have employees. Like, I mean, you're in it. So can you kind of speak about that a little bit? Like when you, again, maybe this is all embellished, but you, you start to see there's a lot of for sale signs, or not for sale signs, for hire signs. There's a lot no, of... No, I mean, everybody's hiring. You know, there's, um, we've won, we have just come through like a, uh, like a, um, you know, a, a very unique in time, a unique point in time. You have... You know, um, a combination of situations you have. Um, first, you know, the, the COVID comes in and it, it stops everybody from sort of moving forward. And then we realize that, you know, we can, you know, that um, I mean, you can really grow, go down the rabbit hole of the of the Federal Reserve and the government. And so, like, you know, the government, you know, pays people not to go to work, uh, which creates a supply chain constraints. In other words, um, I just heard it said really well on a podcast recently. He said, you know, you know, our economy is about making stuff. And we are a society that buys stuff. If, you, if people stop going to work to make the stuff, that means there's less stuff available. If at the same point in time, the government pays people more money than they've ever been paid to not work. Now people have more money than they've ever had to buy the stuff. And so now you have this confluence, this situation where you have more money to buy the stuff of which less is available because less people are working mm-hmm. and you have a huge sort of supply and demand. Uh, you have far more dollars chasing far fewer goods. 
and you have prices going up and those but those companies when they start to see those dollars chasing those goods you know they try to they try like heck to do everything in their power to reignite their workforce reignite their factories re reignite their supply chains to deliver those products and figuring out ways to bring people on uh paying people more dollars today than they were yesterday paying people more dollars tomorrow than they are today to help them make the products so on and so forth so then you have so what happens is every single entity in the area they can't hire fast enough and so you have a bunch of people who who were forced not to work because of the pandemic who were then compensated to stay home and, and take some time before they go back to work and so it creates this very weird dynamic that every single company is hiring people are taking more time than ever before in history to sort of determine what they want to do next gig good gig jobs sort of come out of the pandemic as well so i you know i have friends of mine who, gig jobs meaning yeah yeah uh gig jobs meaning uber eats you know i have a buddy of mine who, okay okay yeah gotcha i have a buddy of mine who worked you know as a dj for years and years and years and i see him driving an uber eats car and he says i'm making like 1200 1500 a week driving uber eats this is a no-brainer you know oh. and i don't have to interact with anybody other than you know walking food at the door you know like all of these interesting mm -hmm. dynamics happening so more people doing gig jobs more people sort of sitting on the sidelines waiting for and 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 justifiably so you know you and i both have young kids if your kid has a sniffle now your kid has to go home mm -hmm. your kid has to be covid tested you know there's no stability in the workforce because people are uncertain as to how long they're going to be able to go back to work you know they have you know employers are forced to be even more flexible which is good but um so now we we are in a situation where it's not every single company is hiring um it's up to us to try to identify individuals in the in the labor pool who are available or who want to be available and figuring out where they should go to work next because a lot of people have changed their minds as to the type of work that they want to go back to a lot of people want to use this time, use these additional dollars that are in their savings account as just sort of like that additional time is additional time for them to think. I did this for my entire career. Maybe I don't want to do that anymore. Maybe I want to go out and do something different. Um, we're always sort of like, that's what we find ourselves in every day. Find, you know, meeting those individuals, trying to place them in those jobs because everybody's hiring and then uh, hoping that we can move fast enough so that we can get the majority of the people back to work sort of before the music stops. And that would be either the economy sort of hits flat. Um, it's the, it's a classic game of musical chairs, you know, at some point in time, um, because of all of the situations that are happening right now with the federal reserve who will uptick, uh, interest rates, interest rates going up will drive, uh, stock market prices down that's going to have, that could have put the brakes on the economy in some way, shape or form, because if interest rates go up, people are less likely to, to uh, get loans. People are less likely to buy homes. People are less likely to, um, what do they call it? Uh, home equity loans, you know, all of these things, you know, their, their propensity to improve their homes goes down if the if borrowing power goes, goes up as far as the expense of it. Do you, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Do, do you think, um, you, you had kind of mentioned like kids staying at home and maybe a, a spouse having to stay home because of, you know, the lack of stability or, um, or the other thing is if people, I forgot I was talking to um, last week about it, 
um, oh, I think it was uh, Jordan LeBlanc, and he I was talking to him about it. it. You know, he said obviously daycare right now. There's there's a shortage of daycare right. providers. So then you know a lot of you know whether it's mom or dad is now facing the 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 option of having to stay home because it's cheaper to stay home and or it's the only thing that you can do because you can't find a place for your kids so you stay home with them and or that the idea that people are you know i think with covid we kind of went through a spurt like you said people kind of realize like oh screw it i don't like working at that job i don't like going to the office i'd rather work at home or whatever and then they maybe started like a little bit of side hustle over the pandemic which maybe caused them now to not be an employee but right. now have their own, you know, maybe a soul, an entrepreneur. Or be a, yeah. I like this flexibility, right? Yeah, and I think well, now with the internet, people have probably have gone on and like how many people went and started something on Etsy or started something on, you know, starting their own little e-commerce business online over the pandemic and then realized like, well, I'm making fairly comparable money, but I don't have to go into the work. I don't have to deal with people. I'm my own boss. Own boss, got my own flexible time. I can yeah. work at midnight if I want. Do you find... I mean, is that part of it too? Or are these all kind of... I think it's part of it. I mean, we don't necessarily have the ability to do a full survey of the entire uh, marketplace to find out what are people's decisions, you know, uh, person to person. But, you know, you if you look at the world from a, a, a macro view and then a micro view and you sort of apply it, you have to, you know, you have to just recognize that if it's more difficult to find people today than it was... You know, because we have what four to maybe six percent unemployment be right now, or is it even going down into the five point? Yeah, it could be. I think it was in yeah. sixes. Yeah. You know, that's only a couple of percentage points away from where it was pre-pandemic. Um, so where are those people? You know, and if you really boil it down, say if there's two percentage points, that means like, so if there's eighty, you know, eighty thousand employees in Clinton, not employees, just people in Clinton County. Uh, you know, two percent of the labor people. pool is a couple thousand people. You know, yeah. so what are those? What are those couple thousand people doing that they weren't doing before the pandemic? You know, they might be, they might be sitting on the sidelines. They might be waiting. They might be doing some gig work, um, or just doing something different, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, I was gonna say. So it's probably a bunch of little factors kind of culminating in this kind of all almost like a perfect storm of all these little factors versus one like thing you could really pinpoint. Right. Right. Okay. So that makes. That makes sense. Um, are you finding that that's been a challenge or are you finding that you can still navigate through that and still are still able to have a good enough selection of candidates to place? No, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a big, big challenge. Um, the advantage that we have over people who don't do this every day is we do this every day. You know, all of our, all our recruiters are doing and all the recruiting support that we have, uh, everybody's effort every day is to identify candidates, you know, you know, Every day. So if, if that, that's all we do. I don't also sell homes on the side. I don't also run a manufacturing facility on the side. All we do from a recruiting standpoint is let's make certain that we're identifying as many people as possible so that we can represent them to the opportunities that we have available and that we'll have available tomorrow. That's the game. So when you... And now, but it's been very challenging. And it, yeah, and it was... When you, when you hire... Or when you try to place someone, you do... Like when someone comes in as a candidate, you interview them, right? Like yeah. that's that's... Proportion, so you kind of like pre-interviewing them and then kind of figuring out strengths and weaknesses. And do you guys do like personality tests or anything like that? Or occasionally, you know, um, oftentimes there's depending upon the candidate level. You know, we find ourselves we a lot of that is driven by what our clients want us to do. You know, certain higher level clients will want us to do personality tests. Um, it's there are I think if you put up too many barriers for somebody to be considered, you know. Um, I don't know if it's as effective as simply meeting individuals, 
listening to them, understanding where they've been, understanding where they want to go, sort of being somebody who sort of is a, is helping them along the path of where they want to go. If they're unrealistic as to the next job they want to have or their compensation levels or whatnot, you know, we certainly have to have conversations with them and rein them in or at least kind of re- align their perspective so that they understand the marketplace in which they're working. But you know, by and large, people, they know where they've been, they know where they want to go, or they have an idea. And for us, sometimes it's, you know, we occasionally will say, you know, I know you wanted to do this work over here, but your skills really apply well to this over here. And so, yeah, let, let us get you in front of them. And, uh, you know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You know, you can wake up tomorrow morning and tell us that you changed your mind, you don't want to go do that job. But we think that if you have, an, if you have the opportunity to go meet these folks over here at this company, um, we like them a lot. I think you're going to like them a lot as well. And then it's up to you as to whether or not you want to go to the second interview or land the job or what have you. Um, so, oh, so if they, you interview them, they go to the company. The company also does kind of a, they do a process of interviewing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, okay, there's every scenario exists in our world. Everything from we meet somebody and we tell them you're going to start tomorrow at 8 o'clock to uh, we meet somebody and they're going to go through a four rounds of interviews for a you know, $100,000 plus job. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you find, is there something that, are any of them easier or more challenging or is it just really comes down to like cer- certain in- instances? Like I'll put it in real estate terms. Like I know, well, two things like, right, like always forever. And this has never changed that lower priced homes, like in our market, because they're, the older homes, old style home, maybe kind of like not, not great condition or deferred maintenance or whatever. Those deals are harder to close than right. deals three, four times the value. So typically as an agent, when you start off, like I just know like the, when you come in, you're obviously, you don't really have a track record and you're kind of getting whatever you can get, which usually is the overflow of what a senior person in the company can't get to. And so you get the overflow of that, which a lot of the times ends up being just because of time and what you get paid for the time you put in and kind of, uh, you know, factoring all that in is that if you go buy, sell, help, you know, obviously the price point's gone up now, but you know, back when I was starting like homes under a hundred thousand, you would go under contract with them, but you would all, you'd run the home inspection issues. You'd run into appraisal sure. issues. So next thing you know, the effort it took to close that was, you know, here and you got paid here. But then you could go find a home that's three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and the effort level really was like here. But you got paid like this because there's no inspections, the appraisal was fine, and you know. But so also, there's more competition for those listings. They're 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 yes, they're they're more sought after, I would right. say. But the whole idea, like, so like in real in real estate, most of the time, like I find selling and buying if you're buying people typically want to find a home right. so the agent they're not as loyal to an agent now some are some buyers are very very loyal right. to an agent but typically someone that's looking to buy a home you see buyers jump ship way more than you'd ever see a seller a seller a lot of times will want to have a specific person or a specific company right because there's more out there's more upfront paperwork there's more process up front that sort of says hey, listen i'm going to sell my home through you I don't want to sell my home. I can, well, first of all, I can't sell my home through four people. But 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 that's true. And then also, they already have something. So with supply and demand, they have the supply. Right. So as a buyer that's looking, they you know they want to have an agent help them find something. So that becomes like a way of means to get something. But at the end of the day, they want the house. So they can, they'll jump ship to get the house. Whereas a seller, like already have it. 
So I just, I need somebody because I don't need a house. I need a person or I need a company or a system or process or whatever to help facilitate it. So for us, listings have always been way better leverage. And from a dollar perspective, a higher priced home is typically an easier sale because you don't run into inspection issues, which are the number one reason deals fall apart. You don't run into appraisal issues as much because the condition of the home meets all the guidelines for the loan, the loan uh, criteria. <laughs> right. And and also, I mean, and you're also the, your target buyer is a more stable buyer. Exactly, and, that, and that's when you start. You're not, they're not nickel and diming as much. So then you find that all negotiations are very much easier to get through. But it's almost like opposite of like you would think that you should work harder for higher a higher reward from a dollar perspective, but now flipping to your company like right now is there ever or not right now but is there ever a time where you would focus more on getting candidates or focus more on getting companies because like if you're like man we have all these companies supply and demand now we got to start really our uh, candidates now we got to start marketing the companies to help us be the person they choose to help place yeah i mean uh, yeah the, the 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 markets have been flow right so that in a in a in a right now candidates are the, the focus yeah, at some point in time the economy would have slow mm-hmm. um, you'd hope the relationships you have with your client companies would be strong um, but if you're brand new in the market you'd be like listen I can find candidates you know they're lined up on the street I need to find companies where I can place these people so and without a doubt over my since 1999 which is how long I've been in this business there have been markets where you're sort of your your job order focused your client company focused uh, or your candidate focused depending upon where you are in the in the up and down cycle um, you know, getting back to your point about like lower price homes being more, more difficult and you know more effort, but you know less less money. You know, there's uh, I have to imagine that for the right agency though, they could they they'd see gold in them, our hills, and they'd say, you know what, if we could just get a process in place where we have our in-house, uh, um, you know, what is it, the appraiser, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily in-house, but we have a strong relationship with the appraiser, strong relationship with an inspector, and we can sort of make this almost like a all right, you want to list with us? All right, the inspector's going to do this. The appraiser's going to do this. We're going to figure out what this thing is really valued at, and we're going to we're going to we're going to tell you. I mean, as fast as we can. Here's what the house is worth. Do you want to sell it for that or not? Because if you don't, then we have to walk away. But if you do, then we can make this happen quickly. We can get buyers that meet this. I mean, I'm not, not telling you anything about your business, but there'd have to be sort of like some program. And I think it's it's not it's not unlike us when we place individuals who've had troubled past. You know. I don't. I don't turn my back on them. I, I say, I want to meet you where you are. We're going to identify the situations that you're in. We're going to have open and honest, frank conversations with our client companies, and we're going to say, listen, this individual. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to put the proverbial lipstick on the pig. I want to tell you, I, you know, this individual's had some challenges, had some troubles, but we we believe that sort of as long as all the cards are on the table and you sort of are aware of the quantity that you're sort of. Um, starting the relationship with um we still think there's value there we think this individual would be a good fit for your company so let's have an open honest frank conversation about you know how we can help that individual sort of land that job well that, yeah when you go from like in our market like a lower price home you know and, and lower price buyers are in listers it doesn't it doesn't really matter because they're both troublesome like if you have a house <laughs> right. if you have a no lower credit. price house and it's like great i got a listing but then it's like oh crap like there's just nightmare inspection issues that we have to get by and that's when it kind of comes into like prepping and doing all the le- the le- uh, the work leading up to it and yeah. trying to get ahead of any problem and kind of like you said put the cards on the table and be like all right we know there's an issue with the floor joist down here we know it needs to be reinforced or whatever here's our strategy this is or here's our offer solutions that we can come up with but I look at 
it's funny though in real estate I found that of all the you know I've spent more time doing lower price deals than like higher end deals because I was just a younger agent working my sure. way up. So like, and I find that like that's where you cut your teeth and you really learn how to become a good agent. And the one thing that I'll find it's funny is that the agents or the buyers or sellers that are selling those lower, you know, lower value homes that might come with a little bit more, uh, you know, a little more work involved. I find they're way more resilient because they have to get it done. Right. But then I also find that when you really look at someone like that. That's a lot of times where the expertise comes in of like looking out for your client because you know a lot of those people, like you said, they're maybe not as stable of a buyer or maybe the selling is they're banking on the sale is accounting for a lot of like their next financial steps. So that's when you're really crunching numbers and trying to find something that works because that's when you, you start having the conversation of like $1,000 is a big difference at that price point where if you're at $400,000, it's like really arguing over 2500 bucks because at the end of the day, when you look at percentage-wise and really what it means sure. – like, you know, someone buying a home in the five hundred thousand dollar range, four hundred thousand dollar range, like they can both swing whatever that conversation is. Right. They both have the means. At that point, it becomes more of like a, I, I want to say like butting who's, heads. Who's going to win? The who's going to win? Yeah. Like, and on the lower end, it's like they're really factoring in like, well, I would love to do it, but I, I can only do this. So, I find down there you really work, you earn it, and I also find that the people once you close. Especially the buyers. The buyers are ecstatic. Usually, it's their first home, so right. it's kind of like a big mo- monumental event. And that's kind of like you said, it goes back to like the fun part. It does take more effort, but then you kind of get the. the I always find you get a little bit more satisfaction when those deals close because you knew it was way harder. Than right, the, and these people were really, really like they, they, this was their fifth home, together, and they're just yeah. sort of like blasé about closing the deal. You know, oh yeah, and they're like you know they're stressing out just as much as you are because you want to keep the deal together for them, and they're they're stressing over like. Well, this like a seven hundred dollar fix that we need to ask for like a boiler or something, and it's like okay, well that starts budgeting wise for these right. people. That's real money, you know. And um, so it's always like it, now in this market, like we always need listings. So it's like I love right. you know buyers are great, and but at the end of the day in supply and demand world, it's like you still need to have the listings come up because I don't want like like what you were saying like if something happens, which I think is the only way that's going to affect buyers right now is if there's any, some type of government intervention or, or uh, that inter- reserve. intervention, say inter- that's right term, right? Inter intervention. Yeah. I mean, right uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Intervention, like, is intervention a- like sitting down, having a talk <laughs> like Dave, we got to really, you no, know, like, the government, uh, they're, they're going to raise interest rates. The federal reserve yes. is going to raise interest rates. For, gonna... Well, I think of like intervention, like sitting around in a circle and being like, <laughs> Dave, we got to talk not, about, right. you got to talk about yourself right now. But no, I'm thinking like intervention. That's the same term, right? I'm having like a brain fart. Like yeah. where someone like, Puts their hand in and does something, manipulates. Yes. So if it's government manipulation of something. Intervenes. Inter- intervenes. Maybe that's the word I was looking for. I don't know. It was something like that. I was, I'm not great with words, but um, doing great. that's why I hold this podcast. <laughs> right? so, but, the, uh, but the whole idea is like if the government goes in and does something that could affect interest rates, could affect the economy, could affect people's you know extra money they have that they could buy a home. Now all of a sudden it's like, well, I got to save up and I can't do that or I can't get the bigger house. That right there. I don't want to see that because what we do, we don't, especially in our market, what we don't want to see are our areas. We don't want to see the amount of buyers go down. We want to right. see the amount of homes go up. But that's inevitable. I mean, the buyer, number of buyers are going to go down at some re- point as yeah. as interest rates rise because it's you know it's just a factor of affordability. It's how expensive is my loan now? You know, I mean, I. I think back, you know, in the seventies, people were getting mortgages for 14, 16, 17% mortgage. I mean, like, and doing it. When when did you get your first house? Oh my God. Uh, Or do you remember what the interest rate was? My first house, I think the interest rate was like five or 6%, you know? And so so it wasn't too bad. No, but I mean, 
fourteen percent is a uh, is crazy. about thirty years was that? It was the eighties and I think early nineties? Seventies, seventies rolling into the eighties. Yeah, it was up until uh, the crash at the late eighties. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, I mean, you can have a market with higher interest rates, but we've been operating at this low interest rate environment for so long that people just think that that's standard. You know, banks have suffered because they can't. You know, their spread between what they can loan and what they can borrow is is constrained. You know, the the uh, the arbitrage between those two is is, is razor thin. So, um, creates all kinds of troubles for them but for the for the economy the flow of money is is rampant you know what uh what is it with the um i was reading like finance books and like stock market books isn't every 10 years it's supposed to go in and out of bear and bull markets isn't that is it every 10 or is it every 20 there was something i think that there's probably on average every 10 years every 10 to 15 years there is sort of a bull bear Rotation. Yeah, and it was pretty consistent through history. I mean, our last one was 2007 to probably, what, 9, 10, somewhere in that yeah. range, before it kind of like really started maybe start to come out a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, you're looking at we're kind of due for it. Yeah, it was know. really 2008 to 11 kind of. Yeah, it's, yeah 11, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and because, uh, I mean, now, like, I don't know if it's any indication, but you see gas prices starting to get higher. They're, what, probably approaching 370 right now, you know, in the yeah. gas. And I remember... Um, getting my license as a 16 year old, I think it was 2007, eight, I've started like drive and I'm starting to pay for gas. It was costing me 60 something dollars a week to put gas in my car. But in a can, as a high school kid selling ice cream, that was like, that's, you know, if you talk about like what what percentage of your income went to expenses, I'm like, well, like 50% of my income went to gas. Right. And and of course, as a kid, not making a ton of money, like it just like was a punch in the gut as, and now, but that was 13 years ago, four, more than that now, 14 years ago, 15 years ago. So like you start seeing that flow where, again, I don't know if it's any indication or whatever, but it looks like, you know, you're kind of following that 10 year, you know, give or take a little bit. You know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense that it would, that it would follow those, you know, troughs, but um, there are people out there who follow the markets from purely from a, a, a numbers analysis standpoint who will tell you almost down to the minute here's exactly when it's going to turn and you know and it, it's interesting there are all of these market forces you know the price of gas is going up is the same thing it's, it's more dollars chasing fewer resources are going to drive the price of, of gas up so if there's if, if OPEC is restricting their delivery of oil if US producers are restricting their delivery of oil if the if the pipeline coming down from Canada is stopped by the Biden administration you know I mean uh, you know I don't, I don't care what side you're on politically the reality is this fact, less yeah. flow of gas producing uh, efforts with more people in the economy having more money to buy is going to drive the price up, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's just it's just a factor of that. Uh, um, speaking of that, when are you getting your Tesla? I know. Right? <laughs> is that is that happening? I haven't put the order in yet because they have. You they, did don't, or have they it? don't know. They don't have the Cybertruck yet. Is that so that you're holding out to? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've looked at the other Teslas and I've drove yours, of mm-hmm. course, but. Um, Right now, we have a Toyota Tundra pickup. Mm-hmm. We have a Chevy Suburban. And we also have a Toyota 4Runner. They're all decent-sized vehicles. And the 4Runner feels small. And so, like, it's, it's a factor of us opening up another office, needing space, 
you know, just putting kids in the car, skis and gear, whatever we have to happen to do. Having a smaller car right now doesn't make much sense, but I think the Cybertruck will be uh, will be a good replacement of my uh, of my pickup truck when it becomes available. And I think we might have talked about this. You don't mind the design of the Cybertruck. I don't mind the design. I think it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see exactly how it looks when it comes off the production line. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, kind of at a pre-production yeah. uh, standpoint right now. I like it better than the Rivian. I like it better. I like, te- for, just like, I like Elon Musk, mm-hmm. and I like what Tesla's doing. Um, I care about that. I think he has the ability to manufacture these vehicles with a, in, in a certain degree of reliability. Um, and I think it's going to be fun to have a, a, a 4 by 4 pickup truck that you know it's almost in my mind i'm gonna have a hard time sort of remembering that i don't have to worry about gas like you know you you drive a toyota tundra around and you kind of have this perpetual guilt of the amount of money that it costs to fuel it your carbon footprint all this stuff it's going to be such a relief to know that i have a a vehicle that doesn't doesn't burn the fossil fuels and uh still is uh you throw a bunch of stuff in the back and and take it to the dump but the cyber truck too i think the towing capacity is on par with most major trucks it's sizable yeah and and the um depending which one you get the single the double the dual the the tri-motor right i mean the tri-motor is the sweet one because i mean just just the the actual specs from um you know the i mean it's 500 miles per charge which is insane because i mean i know what mine gets and i'll be honest that's 40 Forty percent more than what I have right now. Now, right now, what's your average charge for your uh, Model Three? Um, if I charge all the way up, it's they'll tell you a sticker three fifty or three hundred fifty. I would say conservatively, probably more closer to three twenty. Have do you have any of that? Um, I was talking to somebody the other day. They said you know range anxiety. Do you have range anxiety in the wintertime with your car? I don't. Um, it, it does drop off. So like if you have like normally what they tell you is you want to charge up to about 90%, roughly 85, 90%. Yep. Every night you do in your garage? Every night. So yep. I go in, have a charger in the house or in the garage, um, charge it. It's not going to overflow. It's not going to just keep right. sucking battery. It's like it just goes into like battery saving mode. Once just you, like your iPhone. Yep. It's like, okay, you hit it. You're done. So I plug it in every night. And no matter what, whether I need 20, whether I need 200, but the, in the winter you lose 40 to 50% of your miles. Like just because 40% Oh, at least 40, I, I would. So four times 300, that's 120. So really in the winter time, you only have like a couple hundred miles as opposed to like I would, I would usually, yeah. So when I leave the driveway, most mornings it's around 285, about 285 in okay. the summer, it's like just over 290, Okay. about 285. I can probably can. A very conservative number drive about 175 to 185 miles in a day, no problem. Okay. So if I know if I'm going over that, then I would be a little more. Con- I would actually probably increase my charge to 100 percent the night before for those. Do you not? No, you go to 90. So Tesla, you can you can tell it to go to 100. Or you can tell. Oh yeah, you can you can manipulate it. There's like on the app you learn. They tell say, you not to go to 100 all the time. Ideally, they want you to go to about 90 because they don't. It's like the idea of your your best charging it, like. There's a range in the middle. There's a, a comfortable range. So it kind of says like daytime driving, and then it says like they'll call it like trip or something. I think about road trip. I think it's trip, right? and you would you know you would push it up to 100. It can go to 100, but it's the idea that your battery is going to last longer. Now the crazy thing is, I believe the battery I have is supposed to go 500,000 miles, right. which I calculated it's going to take me close to 30 years to drive that based yeah. on my driving behavior. So realistically, I probably could charge up full, but I've had to use a supercharger. 
twice on the same trip. Now, when you go to a, this is probably a boring conversation for anybody listening, but when you go on a, when you, I like it, I don't care. It's you and me right now. (laughs) When we go on a, when you go on a trip and you go to a supercharger and you plug it in, um, how long do you have to charge it for have it be meaningful? I was at the first time I charged it was down to like 15 miles or something. Okay. Plugged it in. I probably charged up at a supercharger, at a supercharger. Legit. Tesla branded yep. supercharger yep. up at the mall. Um, well, this was in, down in Queensbury, but okay. yeah, it was same. same I was setup. there yesterday. Yeah, same setup. Yep, aviation uh, mall. Yeah, mm-hmm. down that one. So pulled in there, uh, went from like again may, maybe fifteen miles, 10, 15 miles, and I had it charged up to probably about 200, 175, 200, and that took maybe fifteen minutes. That's not long. No, and I, I think it charges at like six or seven hundred miles an hour, depending on which one. Like, so. Mine charges at 50 miles an hour at my house. So you can see, like when you put it in, you can tell the difference. Like all of a sudden, just like, it, it charges pretty quick. Typically, I think you can go from zero to a full charge in maybe 30 to 40 minutes. But the, but the thing is, when, when you charge, I forgot who told me this. So someone local, I drove their car. They said, imagine filling up this and like, I was pouring, okay, so like, I'm doing just doing a visual here, but for okay. people that can't see, it's like filling up something with like a pitcher of water. And typically, if you have an empty cup, you would pour very fast. Right. And what happened is you got close to the top. You would start tip, tipping it back so it didn't overflow. Right. Charging with energy does the same thing because you can never overflow energy. So what they do is, and again, if you, I don't know if there's a they science. They feather term. it. Yeah, so end. you'll get to maybe like 90% mm-hmm. very quickly. And then the last 10% is where it takes time because it's it's a slower charge because it's going to get you right to that top num- number. Do so, you remember what it cost you to do that in Queensbury? Um, or how, well, like, it was zero for me because when you when I bought it, I used like someone's referral code, which I just heard the other day they got rid of it, but maybe I don't know if that's true or not. But referral code was I used the referral code. The person I used the referral code got 1,000 free miles, and I got 1,000 free miles. Um so I probably have only charged, I've only used it once. I probably have only charged maybe 200 miles ever on a supercharger, 250, something like that. So it's, it's free, but I think if you go beyond that, I think it's only like, it might from zero to full under 10 bucks, six bucks, seven bucks. Oh, okay. so, so it's like, it's like nothing, but it's a, uh, and the cool thing is I believe it just goes through your app. So when you go and like grab the supercharger and connect it. It's all connected through the whatever the, right. the system is that it just like, okay, like you just used X. Now we're just going to charge your card on file and you're good. So, you're you're at, okay. so you just like walk in, plug it in. Go sit so you're not car. swiping a card on the electric. There's, there's literally charger. nothing. You grab, you literally grab the handle. Same thing at my, my, my charger, my house. What about the buttons. one in front of city hall? That one I haven't. Cause the mayor does his Tesla there all the time. Yeah. So I, I've not used that one. I know there's a, a buddy of mine I know has one and he charged there, uh, you know, I'd say once or twice a week. I, I have used the one in the, um, the pepper parking lot. Yes. From irises. That one, there was an adapter, which they give you when you get the car. So I pop, um, when you get the Tesla, they give right. you like an adapter. So I pop the adapter on, I believe I just plugged it in. I don't think I hit any buttons. And then you, you got it charged. I, your app. I, well, I believe the ones in the city are free. But if you go to some of them, sometimes you have to get an app. You have to download the app. Yep. But the problem is with a lot of those, if they're not as superchargers, like I tried to do one in Saratoga one time, it was charging at two miles an hour. I'm like I got to like like I was thinking, I was hoping it was like forty miles an hour because I need like twenty miles, and they didn't do it. Um, but there was, if you've ever been, this is just recent, over by Sam's Club by the mm-hmm. gas pumps, they just put in new EV chargers. Right. 
Someone told me those are more powerful than the superchargers. Wow. Which I don't know if that's true or not, but I kind of want to just go test it out one day. But and I don't know. I, I don't know the brand, so I got to check the brand of that. But it's they, they, there's probably like four or six of four to six of them lined up. So if that's the case, if that's even faster, then because what you're gonna see with anything like the chargers they have now that are going six seven hundred miles an hour at some point in time, fairly soon, will be going a thousand miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna get to the point where you can charge your your Tesla or your EV car. Um, the same time you go to the gas station, you plug it in within minutes. Well, that's fall. clearly the the desire, right? They need to mimic that experience. Yeah, so they're going to have widespread adoption of these vehicles mm-hmm. because the people, you know, it, right now you can get away with just having a few chargers here, there, and everywhere, and having the the population be able to install their electric, you know, charger in their house, having the ability to do that, the wherewithal, you know, sort of just. You know, you're going to get the, the widespread adoption. People aren't going to do that. So they're going to have to have more widespread. Like, uh, well, I still get a little hesitant, like taking longer trips. Uh, like we took a trip a couple of weeks ago. We went down um, kind of like down by the city, New Jersey area. And my wife wanted to take our, our other vehicle and which was, which was fine. I didn't care. But of course, like when you're driving down, you're filling up. Like, Jesus, you spent like, you know, just with the gas. But, a 60 bucks. but she was, she was nervous about it. And it was fine. Like, I think. The, the one thing that would have made me nervous was just because it was cold. I'd have been in the summer all sure. day long. So I think if they can get to the point where, one, the superchargers are quicker, there's more superchargers. Like right now, there's like 20-something thousand or 22, 23, 24,000 chargers. Um, but I got in trouble one day when I was down in Saratoga. There's no there's no superchargers in Saratoga, which I just... Can't I, believe. Well, I mean, on me, I just assumed I'm down there in track season I mean, that they would have a supercharger. And it's a wealthy town. Like, what are they thinking? Well, yeah, there's, there's, I've, I mean, I was down there. I saw a bunch of Teslas driving around, but the closest one was Queensbury, which is 20 minutes north. Mm-hmm. And then Queen, from Queensbury, there's one in uh, Chest, Chestertown, 26. Right. And then, like, Placid has one. Plasburg has one. Um, Burlington has one. I think there's probably a, a couple more in Burlington or down in Vermont. Um, and there's, there's a handful around the Albany area, but it's, until they become, I mean, I really think in the next five to, eh, I think in the next 10 years, you're going to have more EVs on the road than you will gas powered cars. And I also think at a certain, we're not far away, I think 10 years from seeing, you know, supercharger-esque type chargers as frequent as you would see normal gas stations. Well, I mean, at the gas station, well, the next iteration is there's going to be a set of pumps that convert yep. to electrical. Yep. And they're they're not close enough to the the gas pumps to sort of create a, a hazard as far as that goes. But I mean that that's going to be the case. Well, the one in Chestertown is at the Stewarts. It's at the Stewarts, but it's on it's on the back part it's of the, the lot. Yes, it's on the back yeah. half. But if you were if you were to like look at that, like I think that's just going to be very common. Is you're going to have a row of chart like get you're going to have a row of like petroleum gas or whatever, and you're, or you're going to have a, a row of of uh, electric chargers, EV chargers, and I think eventually, you know, definitely in our lifetime. The gas pump is going to be like the rotary phone, or it's going to be like right. the phone booth at some point in time. Has it's just going to happen, and um, so that was kind of one of the reasons I got it. I was like, I was just, I'm just going to embrace it. One, I love the technology. I love Elon Musk. I think he's. I was going to ask you about that. He's he's Time Magazine's Man of the Year this year. This is morning. he? I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that. But today, that's, okay, that's great. Well, for I mean, good reason. I think I, I don't. I mean, I don't think there's a more brilliant person on planet Earth and in innovation than that guy. I mean, there might be like people that innovate a lot. There's, all, I mean, it's just no. He's he's absolutely a, um, you know, he is the comet across the sky of our lifetimes. Somebody who, um, in everything that he's doing, not just you know, Tesla, 
And I like how he isn't, you know, he recognizes the real challenge is in the manufacturing, the large-scale manufacturing of the cars. Mm -hmm. He sees that as his competitive advantage. It's not even the fact that he came out with an electric car first, because he wants everybody to have the electric car. Mm -hmm. But he knows that he's confident that they're, how he has built out his Tesla, the gigafactories, and how he isn't sort of laden with the technology of the past, whether they be unions, whether it just be a large-scale sort of like stagnant, you know, not that workforces are stagnant, but just people who are used to building cars the old way. He, isn't, he doesn't have any of that anchor in the sand, so he can employ all these newer technologies. But it's the large-scale manufacturing of these vehicles, which is a real challenge, which he... He believes, he, you know, him starting out first, being first mover advantage, even if you're Rivian or anybody else, you know, you're going to have to make all the same mistakes that he's making mm-hmm. and he has made in moving forward. Well, and that's the thing when people, like Rivian and Ford's making a big push and Mercedes, I think is now, I mean, they're all doing it. You know, Volkswagen has one out. And when you start to look at, I think the reason I like Tesla is number one, it was the first one. And I'm not saying first is best, but like you said, first you have the competitive advantages. If you've already made the mistakes, others haven't. You also have like you you have the uh, you have the historical data that you need, and then the other aspect of it that I find is someone as innovative as him. I find that most people are playing catch up to keep up with him. Where he's like, "That's fine, you can keep up with me," but I got all this other stuff that like for some reason he can tap into this insane level of like ingenuity of like looking into the future of what we need and being able to put it together. And I think. I'm really just betting on the person. Like I could get another EV car and it's probably just, you know, comparable maybe. Um, but I just think over time you're going to see such a massive, like just level up of what he's doing. And, and we've seen that. I mean, to go from, I mean, what, two, three years ago, you might've heard of him. And now he's one of the most famous people on earth. Wealthiest person walking planet earth, the most famous person on planet earth, time magazine's person of the year. You know, I heard somebody say recently that, you know, they're like, they're wondering, oh, the self-driving car, how hard is that going to be? They're like, these people need to recognize that with SpaceX, he he innovated the reusable rocket and mm-hmm. landing the rocket back on a pad in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, if he can navigate <laughs> that, he can certainly navigate the... Yes. It's, 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 so, it's like... It almost looks fake. It almost looks... Yes. I was going to say, it's almost like there's a, like a string on. Like, where's the string? Like, I mean, just the motors and the, you know all the actuators that sort of make that be able to come back down. It, it's, it's pure math. It's pure physics. It's just really, really hard math and really, really hard physics. And I think that you know, all of those technologies that are, that are taking place at SpaceX are still being folded back into Tesla from a self-driving standpoint, just all of the, all of their learning in, in both of these camps are sort of helping one another. You know, it's just fascinating. Well, to watch. I, I don't even think he's like, one, that's cool. Cause I think with the, the rocket, I think it was like a hundred million dollars to fly a rocket and maybe the numbers are off, but it was a sizable amount of money. So sure. he's like, every time we can just land one, we save that money. Right. And then it's, and I think for him, it's like, he wants to save resources. He doesn't want to, it's not like he's just, he's not a wasteful person. Right. Like he wants to keep everything good. But I look at, you know, Tesla, I think is, I think out of all the things that he's doing, I think Tesla is actually the most limited of what he's doing because meaning I'm saying like right now it's up, but I think you're going to see like SpaceX really start to climb out because he's navigating space. Like, I mean, there's, and yeah. it's sky's, I mean, literally this universe is the limit. But then I also think when he starts coming out with like Neuralink and things like that, tapping into human brains and human, you know, psyche and all that, I mean, everybody knows your brain's the most powerful 
machine on earth like and it's the, the amount of stuff that goes on in someone's brain has the cap- uh, capacity to do it and i and i again i believe that the people that say we haven't even come remotely close to how powerful our brains are and i think right. if he can go in and figure out a way to extract even more power from an individual's brain than already has to me that's better than a self-driving car you know so it's like when he keeps it's like to me which sounds crazy with what he's doing at tesla dick that's like that's it, and that you're gonna find out like that's like gonna be a little like a, a big thing, but that's gonna be not even worth his time at a certain point in his right. life. Well, it's just be like, well, yeah, it's, it's cool. Not, it's it's not as heavy a lift. The the um, the regulatory obstacles are, yes. are, are are more challenging than the technology. In all of his everything he's doing yes. right now, yeah, because he's not going to some like easy thing. He's going like tackling some big. Well, did you listen to when he was on uh, Rogan? And he talked about I think what was it. Was it planes he was talking about or ships? It was something like that. It was another form of transportation. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he started like explaining what he would want to do. And he's like, Joe's like, holy crap. He goes, why aren't you doing it? He goes, I just don't have time. I'm like, oh, okay. So you, oh, you understand it. Like you could do this. <laughs> oh, he and, not, without a doubt. I mean, he, he absolutely understands the and, physics but, and the math. And the way he was saying it was like, well, you got the pressure here and this. And he was talking about, I think, sending planes up to like whatever the height was. Because there's less, yeah, there's less pressure less the pressure. higher you go. So whatever it was it would make transportation quicker, kind of like the right. Boring Company, like going through a vacuumless tunnel that has yeah, zero, there's far more resistance when you're higher up, or a vacuum tunnel with no with no friction, right? Because I think there was something I read where it was like you go from like New York to like L.A. in like under an hour or thirty minutes or something. It's crazy how you know. That, and then for him, that's like a no brainer. He's like, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, Wait, what? But <laughs> but imagine if that becomes common. All of a sudden, you have these intercontinent or interstate, interstate, intercountry, like instead of like a Route 66, like okay, hop on here, and you're gonna get to L.A. within half hour. Yeah. And but then you have all these major tunnels and these little sub tunnels, and all of a sudden you have this underground you know, uh, transportation hub that, I mean, kind of like a subway, but yeah, I mean, powerful. I think that, you know, what's interesting about that as well is, um, let's just fast forward. If we had any type of, uh, um, cataclysmic event, whether it be, you know, you know, world war three or meteor coming down and we aren't able to push it away. Um, if we're able to have a lot of transportation be below ground and have it be outside of, of weather and anything else, uh, available oxygen or just natural oxygen i think all of the all of that all of that work that we put in now may end up having some additional benefit down the road do you um <laughs> i'm not really a sci-fi no, guy but no but, but did you listen to um do you listen to rogan at all all the time did you listen to the jimmy corsetti no so he starts talking about um like the egyptians okay and he starts talking about like these underground i think they were in turkey these underground like cities and people, they were dr- like drilling, whatever they were doing back then. But the whole idea was how advanced were these people back then that they started crafting these underground cities. And at one point they, they said, well, they just did it because they thought they were going to get attacked. He goes, there's no way from the time you thought you were going to get attacked to the time you could actually dig these that you did it in that time frame. Right, right. Because you're going through like... It was a larger strategy. Absolutely. And he goes... and. He goes, some of them you can, I think there's one that you can go in, but some of them have been blocked off. And some parts of, in Egypt, they've blocked off like underground cities that like you don't even know what's down there. And then they started talking about like how they came up with the pyramids. And I didn't realize this, but the pyramids of Giza that we all know about, like I just thought those were the pyramids because no, there's way more pyramids in, in, in Egypt. Those were just, the, those are the famous ones. But he goes like, we start like, 
seeing how they were moving stuff and how heavy these things are. And then they're going up over stories. And he goes, basically what they were getting at was just, they would love to have gone back and just seen it in process, like the process. Right. Like, how'd you do this? And I think what they were saying was like how advanced our civilization might've been at one point in time. And, I, and again, I don't know the whole dip as to why we'd be that high and then dip and then come like back out. But I think the, when you start looking back at human history and some of it, you know, answers to, and some of it you don't, but like how, how advanced were these civilizations thousands of years ago that we might've thought were like, you know, you know, very simplistic people. But then you realize like what they were actually doing. Like, holy crap. Like this is this, this like right now would be innovative. And they right. were doing it back then with, I would deem way less resources. Without but, calculators, evidently. Or, well, yeah. I would think, but then again, who knows? They might have had, like, right. I don't know, maybe it wasn't technology, maybe it was something else. But Maybe we are all, maybe we are all just aliens from another planet that... Uh, <laughs> just living in, a, just living in like a, an experiment. And I, well, they were talking about Atlantis too. They said, like, well, the, the, you see the, the way they had like the sand and stuff? At one point, that was an actual... I don't know whether that was above water or not, but that was an actual like place. No, that's uh, all of these topics are super, super fascinating. You just, I mean, in, in uh, central in South America, same thing. There's, you know, there's, there are civilizations and pyramids and ruins that we're just discovering using sort of like um, newer technology, whether it be, um, what am I trying to say? Not like radar or, you know, um, it was like sonar or something. Yeah. yeah. Just being able to go over and say, Oh, that, we thought that was just a, a rainforest or a jungle and kind of find out there's an entire civilization that's just grown over. We didn't even know it was there. And, you know, just figuring out that what the hell were these people were doing and, well, and, and why were they building it this way? And, and it's kind of like when we were out in Chichen Itza, there's a, there's a ruin in Chichen Itza in Mexico that, you know, when the sun goes through the top at a certain time of year, the shadow on the rocks on both sides looks it sort of when the sun goes down, it makes a snake. And, and that was, uh, you know, it was an intentional design that was sort of honoring like this, this some kind of snake. Or, you know, be like, like you say, people were pretty it, precise about stuff when they didn't necessarily evidently have the tools to be that precise about things. Well, that and I think that, the crazy thing now, when you look at like the civilization and the one thing that fascinated me, and I've talked about it before on this, is that people are buying land in virtual worlds. The metaverse. Well, like metaverse. And I must, again, I, I feel like I'm like, uh, have you ever seen the clip with, uh, was it Brian Gumble talking about the internet? Like the old clip where he's like, I don't know, just going, <laughs> like all this stuff, like. And, but it's like, I don't know, I got an email. It's like, I don't know what this email thing is. But so I feel, I feel like it's my Brian Gumbel moment, but I don't really know what the metaverse is in the sense if I know it's like a virtual reality AI. But well, have you ever tried out an Oculus? No. Okay. First of all, you got to go out and buy the Oculus too. We bought the Oculus. Those are the new ones from Facebook? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you know, Facebook, here's, you know. Or Meta, whatever company right. made it. But, you know, Oculus was a startup, 3D startup that, um, Mark Zuckerberg, when he's starting Facebook, he says, you know, Facebook in, in its present iteration isn't really the, the big, you know, he wants to connect people. And right now, the first vehicle was a web page. The next vehicle was an app. But what's the next iteration of that? Well, the reason why Facebook bought Oculus seven years ago, and there's a really interesting interview with Gary Vaynerchuk and Mark Zuckerberg about this, and it's not too long ago. But 
you know, it's about connecting people again. So you put this this thing on. My 11-year-old son has it. And you're in a virtual world. Like, you are in a house. And you're looking around. And you're looking outside. And you can walk around the house. And you can see people. And it, it's very rudimentary right now. But it's very real. And you you don't have to be all that intelligent to say, you know, extrapolating this forward just a few years. Um it's well within our poss- uh, within the it's, it's going to happen where I put one on, you put one on, you want to do a podcast. Hey, David, let's sit down and have a conversation. And I don't move and you don't leave here. Mm-hmm. You put it on. But we're, I walk into your conference room and you have it appointed in any way you want. In fact, right now, there are clothing designers, Ralph Lauren and the like, who are, you know, have you ever played Fortnite? No. Okay, the game Fortnite. I'm, a, I'm aware of it, but I've never played it. And the game Fortnite, it's a free game. They make millions of dollars every, every month for a lot of reasons, but mainly buying skins. You can buy a skin every week. There's new skins that come out. Trust me, I've, I've spent literally $1,000 on stupid skins for our, my two boys playing Fortnite. And, and they, they get peer pressured into either it's all of the football teams are now available, so now you can dress, your character can wear that skin. Oh, so skin is like a costume. Costume. Gotcha, okay. Okay, and so, but all the different costumes, all the different iterations. The Rock right now is a is a skin in Fortnite, and you can look like him, and you can you can be The Rock, right? Um, costs $11 for the stupid skin, and it's all virtual. Yeah. But, they, but the kids have peer pressure to have skins because they don't want to be the kid who, if you show up yeah. on the game with the original outfit, yeah. you're a loser, right? Oh, yeah. So it's like showing up with like the Folkleys back in the day. You <laughs> so, want the real Oakleys? Like I don't want that cheap. Yeah. So in the metaverse, when I put on my, if I want to dress in a Ralph Lauren suit and come to the meeting with you, I'm gonna pay Ralph, Ralph Lauren for the skin. Unreal. Okay, <laughs> so unreal. <laughs> and. Your, my image will look like my face. Like what you're looking at. Cause you so have I literally your, feel like I'm, I could see, like. You're going to have a conversation. Now they're doing like the hand stuff. We're like, I, if we, right? Right. Right now, right now it's just two controllers we have at home. But yeah, they're working on all like of a, that. There's like a claw thing. Where I could probably shake your hand and physically feel like I'm shaking Dave's hand. Right. Because all of the haptics, you know, like on your phone where you touch it and, mm-hmm. you know, when you hit the your iPhone. Or, yeah. The, you know, um, that's all being developed. And so you just think about that. You're going to be able to buy a home in the virtual world. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to buy a car, uh, and you're going to experience, you could be able to go on vacation with your kids. I mean, the scary thing about that is like you're all just in your home sitting down with this stupid thing on. But, I mean, that kind of, if you go all the way to that end, I think it's a little creepy. But at the same time, if you are a business and you want to have a conference, a global conference with your team, you know, right now we're like, oh, Zoom is so great and I can see you on the screen and it's real time and it's not slow. But it's really going to be interesting when you can put on these things and you can walk into the conference room and you can see all of your teammates around the table and you sit down and you'll have a whole conversation. You know, great headset, great, you know, uh, well, audio well i think what's going to happen too is like take a like we're both in the business field if all of a sudden you're like elon musk is giving a you know is hosting an event or a keynote and you right. want to go to it yeah you just okay well like you get a ticket and you put it on you like walk into this big conference room and there's elon and like shakes your hand or all of a sudden you can like 
walk by and be like, "What's up?" He's like, "Hey, man, how's, how's it going?" But they can like see every like. I just look at like weird things like that, um, and like you said, the skins. There's the reason I'm saying it is like people are buying land in virtual worlds, which same same thing. The way your kids want to skin for whatever reason, like, and again, it, it's it's like anything else that is a commodity. It's it's the value you place on it. So if your son and millions of other, you know young men around the world are playing this game and want to have it, then there's that certain level of demand for it. Right. And there's a certain level of like, oh, that looks like something I would want. So when you go in real estate land, like all of a sudden if you're dealing with something with real estate and someone's got, I call it the Malibu you know, waterfront in this virtual world, well, everybody would like to have that because of the view or whatever. Because again, you can see it. So it's like, well, it's not, I don't have to live in, you know, Middle, I don't have to live in a flyover state. I can live along the coast of California and it's gorgeous. And I see, you know, birds and I see the surfers and I can see, I get the saltwater feel I can taste and like, and I literally am living in Des Moines, you know, and that's like, that's, it's crazy to think about or like traveling. Like, Hey, I want to go to like Australia to, well, today yeah. and I don't want to take the flight. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I was like, I'm, I'm watching Reese play Fortnite a couple of years ago now and Suddenly he says, "Yeah, there's a marshmallow concert." You know, the rapper, the guy with the big like white. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's like, "There's a concert happening right now. It's a big live event. There's like everybody around the world is all excited about this." And so I'm watching him, and his character is in there, and they, they essentially they cancel everybody's guns, so there's no more ammunition, and they allowed people to have like they changed their gravity. So like if you jumped, you could be in the air. And you could float a little bit, and so now the character. And then up on the on your TV screen, on the screen was a stage, the DJ guy, whatever. And he comes out, and they go through like five or six songs. And Reese has his headset on, and he has the controller, and he's controlling his guy, and he's watching him. So he feels like is that like Coachella or something? Yeah, I mean, and it's and this guy is he's being paid millions of dollars. Oh, absolutely, because he's literally. He's really doing the sound stuff somewhere, and you're seeing a, a, a virtual version of him. And I'm just, and at that moment, I was just like, "Holy macaroni! Like this is really gonna happen! Like, and kids aren't gonna care." Like, that marshmallow event was awesome yesterday. Did you go? I know. And like, <laughs> like I know. makes you rethink the concert tickets. I just bought to see <laughs> someone live and to really right. just see the music. Well, uh, then you have the uh, COVID or any type of thing like that, and like. Now you see, like the slippery slope is, you know, we get scared enough, you know, we won't go anywhere. Yeah. I, and and the thing is, you always say, does it make people less social or more, more social? It's. I think this is actually going to break the barrier a little bit. It's more social, be, but differently. I think, think it would be more social than hiding behind a computer typing or something. Because you, you still got to, I would still think there's still some level of like realistic functionality. Like if I was, see, this is the thing that's crazy. It's like. If I was to make a facial expression, could you see my facial expression? Right now, no. And that's and that's kind of the thing. But that's only a matter of time. Because if I start talking, they just move my mouth generically, like it looks like I'm right. talking. But like I could be like, you know, just I, I think there's not, and again, it's very early stages. This is gonna get to the point where you're like, like I mean, take early video games to where they are now. Like, well, Reese plays monkey tag, right? He puts on the the. Thing is that a monkey he, or a monkey tag? Is that a video game? Yeah. Okay. It's a video game in the, in the Oculus. Okay. And he's, you have to, you know, he has to, we have an open uh, room downstairs in our basement and he stands there and you see him talking to four or five of his friends. He's like, all right, let's go. And they, they go into this room playing monkey tag and it's literally 
30, because he can cast it to a TV and I can watch him if I want. So I can watch on the TV what they're seeing in the screen in front of him. And oh, he, so you can see his buddies running around. Yeah, he can see his buddies running around. I can watch the whole thing. Right? Yes. Wow. And I'm seeing it from his point of view, actually. Yeah. Right? But they're all playing tag, and they're, they're climbing trees and jumping off of trees and sort of running around in this area. On the, and, they're, and he's like, he's walking in the, he has a limited space he can walk, but he's moving his arms because in the game, the only way you move is like, like, almost like you're a gorilla using your arms. Or like a so, skier, like a cross But like, boom, boom, both arms, both arms. And then he climbs the tree, climbs the tree, climbs the tree, one arm, one arm, you know, one arm left, left arm, right arm, left arm, right arm. And he's like going crazy, right? And then, so like they play endless rounds of this thing and he takes it off at the end and he's like, out of breath. Gassed. I mean, his face is sweat. His body, he is, you know, he, he is, it's a full-blown exercise. So, so, like, when he's climbing, he's, it's, like, almost like climbing in place. But he's, like, it's not like he's physically has to go find something to climb a wall. No. So, like, if, if like. He's if, climbing in place. Like, I was thinking, like, if somebody walked in here and was like, hey, I want to sit at the table, the chair with you. Like, they would go grab the chair and, like, go to right. sit. Like, would they just. Right, like, but they would probably just. They'd bring the chair over, and then they wouldn't have to sit, but they're, they could hit but a button. they would do like a motion to make they it feel like they're sitting. And, yeah. And then they'd be standing there feeling like they're sitting, but yeah. what they're seeing is like them sitting with me and you. Yeah, out of their eyes. It would be like, yeah. They'd... It's so wild. No, it, you ought to really try it. I, uh, it's, it's and, all, and if, it, is, if you're not careful, it can be a little bit like... It's crazy. Like, like it, it's like it can cause you to have sort of like, a, what do they call it? Like emotion sickness if you're not careful. Like sometimes okay. you just... I, I, I would love to like I like I like new stuff like technology I'm not the ones that be like oh that's stupid I won't try it because you know it's going that way and and the thing is when you like I think the last two three four I mean maybe longer but I think like over the last couple years there's been like a light like a like someone threw gas on on a on a fire with the amount of just like technology and a lot of kids on like this young right. kids on social media because it's like anything else it's a fad or it's or it's like well I wouldn't say it's a fad but it's like a it's like a cultural movement, but it starts out as a fad amongst young kids, and then all of a sudden it catches fire, and all of a sudden they just kind of lead this morph, and then it's like anything else. Like, parents didn't have Facebook until kids had Facebook, and right. then parents had it, and then kids were like, yeah, I'm going to get off Facebook, because mom and dad and grandma are on it. And then and then I think that you kind of start seeing, that's why I like TikTok, and that's why, you know, Instagram, and, and you know, I don't know how big overall, like, Twitter and Snapchat are in the game, but... TikTok's obviously huge right now for kids, and I'm sure there's other platforms I haven't even heard of that kids are right. all over. But I think that looking at this just is going to cause everybody eventually to start rethinking what they want to do, um, it, at least within business. And like people said, you'll never buy a home virtually, and I agree. I think you will buy homes virtually. The problem is right now in our world, like over COVID, it's like I'll do a walkthrough with the phone. I'm like the problem with that is people don't have the spatial awareness. But if you can put the glasses on and you can have the spatial awareness, you can walk in a room and feel, okay, the, the window's about this tall, the door swings open here, it feels like I can put my bed here, but you're physically in the space. That absolutely I think people will buy without having to physically be in a spot. But like, you know, when you're seeing, even 3D images make it look cool, but you don't get to feel the, like, again, the spatial awareness. Put the glasses on, then I think the sky's the limit. And then... And I don't know, kind of in your business and my business, like I'm not naive to think like real estate agents or staffing companies will never have a job. But at that point, you would have to tap into some type of emotional intelligence in order to make that happen. Like an E, like a, um, was it EQ kind of thing? Sure. Or EI or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to, you'd have to really tap into that aspect because again, we don't sell products 
we sell services, which is at the end of the day is a human element because there's right. emotion. There's, you know, a lot of just that connectivity, but I'm not, you know, I'm not naive to think that my, my job might be obsolete at some point in time. And then you just evolve and do something different. But so they, someone could come in and all of a sudden disrupt the service industry where it's like, I really don't need someone because I have some virtual robot that can talk to me just as a normal person would talk to me. Well, I think that, well, here's what I say. Um, I think, again, the job that what you provide is the advice and direction in helping two deals come together. You know, what is going to help, you know, there's, there's technology already, software companies out there that are de- developing devices that can quickly take sort of 3D images of the house and then mm-hmm. sort of provide that imaging up to a 3D, you know, mm-hmm. Oculus-style viewer. Um, what's going to be great is if somebody wants to buy a house, they'll, you know, that, does, that doesn't take you out of your game. All that does is it saves you gas. Yeah, to be time. honest, it's quicker. And, and in fact, you would be smart to. That would be a competitive advantage for me. Yeah, yeah. You, you could put this. You could put one on. You could have your 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 customer put one on. Matter of fact, you have two or three of them here at your office and say, "Come to meet me at the office. Let's go. Let's walk through twenty five homes mm-hmm. right now." And then at the end, which one do you really like? Oh, I really like this one. All right, let's go see it. Right, and then because that and that's probably the next iteration for as long as you and I are going to be. I think uh, that happens in the next five years. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. And, do and you th- I think that's really neat, though. Oh, I do, too. Like I said, I think I'm never going to shy away from tech. Like, I think it's just you have to adapt to it and learn it. And But I think you have to embrace it and try to find the competitive advantage of what's coming out. And that's something that um, I've always tried to be f- ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff because I try to see what's coming. Mm-hmm. And then I try to just go all, let's say go all in, but I try to go into it and learn it. There, that's why there's a few things right now with life being a little crazy um i mean business and just having three young kids like there's some stuff i don't get to focus as much on right so i find that there's a little bit of there's some things right now technology wise in the world that i'm a little i think behind the behind the eight ball on if i were you i'd do yourself a favor and for christmas i'd buy yourself it's uh 399 for an oculus 2 it's worth it just buy it i think that like the reason I'm often, and my wife and I are often, probably more me than, than she is, but she's always down for whatever I'm sort of, she knows I'm, I'm a tech geek. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I don't ever want to be left behind. Like, I, I buy it for my kids, but as much for, like, I like knowing. I, I like standing there watching You're them go to the uh, Marshmallow concert. Because in my mind, I'm like, wow, like these people, like, there, was, there wasn't 50,000 people at this concert. There was... 50, 50 million, million people yeah. at this concert yeah all around the world simultaneously you know that's pretty wild i mean like, just that access because that concert even though in the in the game there's only 100 players watching at a time you know that him doing the marshmallow side providing sort of the the the, the talent that could be going on simultaneously at an infinite number of stages Oh yeah. Well, I mean, think of like Live Aid or Woodstock or these things where you have. But I mean, like simultaneously, because in the game of Fortnite, there's only a hundred players at a time on the stage uh, in on the oh, island. Okay. But that island can be duplicated infinitely. Well, I was thinking like a, almost like a global Woodstock, where you right. have like a thousand stages and there's bands all over the place, and you're just like, oh my god, I can watch so and so, and I can watch so and so, and these bands are honestly just playing in their studio at their house, right? But millions of people watch them. Yeah. And um, are, are you? How much do you know about NFTs? 
Not enough, even though I am aware of, you know, it's no different than, uh, you know, non-fungible tokens and is, is, a, is a digital representation of, of it's, it's, it's a digital object. Mm-hmm. It is a, you can have a piece of art that is done entirely digitally and then somebody say, yeah, but it's really easy to, to, to copy that and, and just have unlimited number of copies. Yes, but there's only one original and then one original NFT is where the value is, not unlike a piece of art. Do you have the original or do you have a print? Yeah, how many prints of Mona Lisa are there? Yeah, and you have yeah. a print or do you have the poster? You know, I mean, even that. So, like, that same thing is going to happen. So I think that that's, that's interesting um, that, there, that there's a market for that. What's more interesting to me than NFTs themselves is the whole, like, the digital contract, the smart contract in the, the world of... Um, and you should do more research in this because I think that your ability to have a digital contract, like the whole real estate contract and, and you know, how that, you know, how much more, um, you know, the, the whole blockchain and digital contracts, from what I understand it, it sort of, it, 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 it more strongly reinforces terms, more strongly reinforces who is involved in that transaction and, um, it's imminently uh, enforceable. It can't be burned up in a fire. It can't be. You know, there's. I think that there's, there's, there's work to be done along the whole like the the the, the NFT side. Like like Bitcoin is less interesting than the blockchain. NFTs are less interesting than the smart contracts. That's that's from what I'm understanding. That's that's yeah, the world. This this is some stuff that I want to look into, but. Um, yeah, it just it, it's it fascinates me, but it's also one where if I don't, if I'm not in it and I'm not really looking into it, and really learning it, I always feel like I'm falling behind. Yeah. So I get I get like a little bit of anxiety of like I don't I don't have to be investing in them, but I need I want to understand them. I want to understand where they're going because I think you know the good thing about the good thing about you and I is you know we call the shots and we can uh, you know the good. I, I allude to like a, a bobsled or like a hockey hockey player. We're hockey players. So we can stop on a dime and change direction. Right. Really by just saying we want to change direction. You know, I mean, there's stuff with it, but we don't have to ask permission to do it. Yeah. I think the slippery slope, though, for people like you and me is like at some point, you know, we have to recognize, you know, if, if you care about sort of growing your company, growing your earnings and everything like the, I have to, I, it's really easy for me to sort of go down all these different rabbit holes. I love learning about them, mm-hmm. but executing our business every day and and then at the end of the day, managing the time with the kids and sort of making certain that they grow up. I, I, if I go down too many different wormholes, I feel like I'm, I have a, a you know there's a there's a uh, you know, a decreasing marginal benefit over time. Uh, I I probably should just focus it, on my business. Yeah, I was gonna say that's. I, I think most pillars when I really try to like break it down and say like what's most important. I really only have like you have like your family and your work, and then and then I have you know I, I would say family work and I try to put in like you know obviously exercise and things like that. Yeah. But then you take that off. Then for me typically it's like can I have some like fun play recreation because I think like just mentally I need you know time and that's either golf or skiing for me. So I put those two on the table, and then there's always like the 
learning aspect that I try to fit in? Where can I learn about stuff? And that might be learning a hobby or a skill, or that could be learning like just doing research. But when I always break stuff down, that's really where they fall. Like, yeah. I, like you said, video games. Like I, or I don't say you play them, but like you mentioned video games. Like I want to put video games in my day to day because like it's right. not something that dives to the top. And but it's when you start putting these pillars down, I really always come back to the same like five or six pillars. And really, you'll probably get a bunch a couple of them together. So yeah. it's really like maybe four or five tops. Yeah. And that's really kind of where you just live. You live in that like lane. Because again, you can only, if you want to do something at a high level, you have to really put your chips all in a big, in like major baskets. You can't just diversify everything in your life because then you just kind of, you know, you know a lot about a very little amount and that doesn't right. really get you far in life in, in <laughs> no. a lot of things. Um, but uh, Dave, wrap it up there. I think we got to wrap it up. That's good. This this was great. I actually learned a lot. <laughs> not that that's not as a bad. That was that actually sounded like a bad shot at Dave. No, no. I always learn stuff with Dave. But this I, I like it was good. I, I think it's uh it's always fun to sit down and have a conversation with somebody. I feel like today it was uh, for me it was a real conversation. It you know I I got I got lost. You know you forget that you're doing a podcast, but if you can just sort of be in the moment and really just you know. Um, no matter what the topic is, I think that's what's, that's what's compelling about podcasts is that if, when I listen to them and I listen to so many different types, it's funny. Like I listen to some that are really, really educational. And then I listen to some that are sort of just people shooting the breeze, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you can, when you can be sort of that fly on the wall audience member, just two people shooting the breeze who might be funny or might be compelling. Um, it's really super interesting. So hopefully somebody, gets something out of this conversation today as well yeah no i thought it was great so um dave anybody needs to find you where can they find find you and the rest of the team we are at coyerstaffing.com and 518-324-5678 you can uh email me david at coyerstaffing.com we are also located at 20 Susie wilson road in essex vermont so coyer staffing vermont coyer staffing north country and uh we hope to meet you soon and beyond <laughs> All right, that's episode 177 of the Galen Trombley Show. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.